the book of Revelation. We're at Revelation chapter 3, verses 7 to 13. Revelation chapter 3, verses 7 to 13. This also is God's holy word. Revelation 3, 7 to 13. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia, write, the words of the Holy One, the true one, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door, which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power, and yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not, but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. Because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world, or to try those who dwell on the earth. I am coming soon. Hold fast what you have, so that no one may seize your crown. The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it. And I will write on him the name of my God, and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven, and my own new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. May we go to our God and ask for his blessings on the reading and also the preaching of his holy word. Our almighty God, we thank you, Father, for you have given us the truth in your Son, Jesus. Father, we thank you that though we lack power in this life, in this world, that we worship the one who possesses all power and authority in heaven and earth. Father, we thank you for your love for us. We pray, Father, acknowledging the duties that we have. Father, oftentimes people think of these as minor duties, that we might keep your word, that we might hold fast to your name. But Father, these are great duties. Father, we ask that you would watch over your people, that we would come to understand the importance of faith and obedience, that you treasure that, that you reward that. Father, we pray and thanks for the crown that you have given us through Christ, the crown of glory, the crown of heaven. Father, we acknowledge that no one received this, receives this unless we are willing to wear the crown of suffering and of shame. And Father, may we uh, count the suffering and shame for the name of Christ of little pain compared to the eternity that we have with you. Father, may we treasure what is yours. May we treasure you. Father, we pray for the good news of the gospel to go forward even this day, that sinners would hear the gospel and believe upon Jesus Christ for eternal life. We thank you for your love for us. We pray, Father, that our Lord Jesus would be exalted and that your servant would be humbled. We thank you in Christ's name. Amen. I distinctly remember a time speaking to a, a Christian brother, a friend of mine. Uh, this is when we were both single. He lived in a, in a house with several single men. And uh, he was upset. These were all Christian brothers. In his room, he liked having a window open for ventilation so that uh, 
you know, certain odors in their house, you know, you can imagine four young men living together, there might be some bad smells. So he, he liked having the ventilation so that the smell from the rest of the house didn't get into his room. And he was upset because he made it clear to the other three men, hey, listen, I like to have the window cracked open in my room, especially when I'm not there, so it, there's ventilation. And then he would come back after a day's work and find that the window was shut and locked. And he said, hey, guys, I, I asked you not to mess with this window. And they said, okay, got it. And he would open it and leave for work, and you'd find it shut again. And here he was telling me his frustration. He was expressing his anger. And even as I think about that, I think about how our Lord Jesus is the one who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one will open. Apparently, he was realizing that he is not the Lord Jesus because the Lord Jesus is the one who alone has that ability. For the rest of us, we do things and people come to undo it, right? You have someone in a certain place, you have a successor, they come, they undo everything that he did. And then you have someone who opens a window and someone else comes and shuts it against his will. You realize that this is a reminder to us that we don't have the final say. We don't have all authority and power. That's okay. The Lord Jesus does, and we worship him. We trust in him. We go to him in prayer. He is the one who has that finality. No one can hold back his hand. No one can undo what he does, but he alone is the one who possesses that. Even as we think through this book of Revelation, written during a time of much persecution, much affliction, and what seemed like uh, unlimited power uh, held by despots, that a fledgling church was in a time when there were all kinds of temptations, all kinds of struggles, that uh, certain rulers came, you know, these are Caesars, that they came, they rebuilt cities that were uh, defeated, they rebuilt cities that were destroyed by earthquakes, and they had to then make some kind of a temple for that emperor. And then there would have been worship involved with that. And there would have been the challenge to Christians, hey, listen, you make us look bad. This Caesar rebuilt our city. What is wrong with you? Why will you not pay homage to this man? Well, to give him honor is one thing. But to say Caesar is Lord is something entirely different. And we're, you and I are reminded, we must be reminded, that uh, we can never think of saying words as mere words. It's just a matter of words. Say these words and be done with it. You don't, you don't have to believe it. Just say those words. But you realize our God takes words seriously. And because he does, he expects that you and I would also. We're not called to mouth off certain phrases, certain uh, inflections, certain intonations. We, we, cannot, we cannot simply say that this is just a diphthong. You, you, you are just saying some, uh, some linguistic tones. That's all. That's all you're doing. You're just making some linguistic tones. No, that when we speak language, God has given us language. They have meaning. And there is homage that is being paid. Our words are important. And we think about the great promise that Revelation gave, Revelation 1-3, that blessing on those who read, who hear, who keep the word of this prophecy. It is not minor. It is great. We see these letters that are given and how the images that are shared 
the descriptions about Jesus relevant to the churches being addressed. That this letter, these weren't letters addressed individually to individual churches. This was one whole letter sent to all of these churches, relevant to each one of them, relevant to you and to me, relevant to the church here today. The common theme that we see was that the church had the temptation to conform to the culture in the world. The world was constantly calling them, become like us. It's almost as if, if you've ever sat next to someone who sings off-key. Everyone can sing on-key. One person singing off-key, he's always going to be the loudest one. You know it, right? He's always going to be the loudest one. And to sit next to someone where we're all singing the same way, and this person's singing off, you struggle to keep that key. But you know what? The world is all singing in this flat, and you and I are called to sing on key, correctly. There's a temptation that our tune would change slightly. But here the Lord Jesus is one who has called us out of this world. He called us out of darkness and into his marvelous light. That he has not called us to leave this world. That when a person is saved, there's not suddenly beamed out of this world. We, we are still part of this world. We still have duties in this world. We still have responsibilities in this world. Yet he has called us not to be conformed to this world. Not to think the same way of those in the world. So this letter to the church in Philadelphia... Here, God, or Christ, praises patient endurance and keeping faith in him amidst opposition, for which he promises exceedingly great eternal blessing. Christ praises patient endurance and keeping faith in him amidst opposition, for which he promises exceedingly great eternal blessing. We'll look at this in three points. The first, Christ praises. Second, Christ promotes. And third, Christ promises. So the first point, Christ praises in verses 7 and 8. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write the words of the Holy One, the true one, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power, and yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Here we have at the opening, addressing the angel of the church in Philadelphia. That we have a Philadelphia in Pennsylvania. It's not the same city. It's the same name. It's not the same city. This is in Asia Minor. That this is along the, the postal route. Think about how the Lord Jesus is the one who is speaking. And in the various letters, he addresses himself to the church in a different way. That Jesus refers to himself as the Holy One. We see this mentioned. We see this, uh, this title given to Jesus. That his own disciples in John 6, 69, we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God, that his disciples address them as the Holy One, and also the demons in various passages. The demons address him. The demons address him correctly, that you are, because we know who you are, you are the Holy One of God. What they got wrong was the timing. Have you come to torment us? They know that torment is coming. This is the, the lake of burning fire. 
And uh, they got the timing wrong. They knew what the event, they knew who he was, they knew the sentence they deserved. They just got, oh, the timing is off. So Jesus is this holy one. Jesus is the holy one of God. Holiness describes God's otherness. So we can talk about, you know, righteousness or purity without sin. That is all true about holiness. But holiness specifically refers to God's otherness. He is unique. He is distinct from all of creation. He is the creator. Then there's creation. He is holy. And there's us. God's law, we read earlier from the larger catechism, that God's law reminds us of God's holy character. We think about all the things that he is, and we think about all the things that we are not. Jesus is also the true one. He is the one in whom there is no deception. He is exactly as he says he is. John 1.14, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Jesus is not merely someone who chooses to speak the truth. So he's not one who, he, he chooses to speak the truth, and he also chooses not to. No, no, he is the truth. He, he cannot be anything other than the truth. He cannot speak anything other than the truth. He is the key, he has the key of David. So the words of the Holy One, the true one who has the key of David. We find this reference, remember we mentioned that Revelation is so full of these Old Testament references, Old Testament scriptures that, that are there. It, oftentimes it requires that we have a thorough understanding of the Old Testament. And I don't know about you, but I, I openly admit that the New Testament is a smaller book. Uh, and, and I happen to know that better than the Old Testament. It, it should not be the case. We should know scripture, all, all of scripture. Isaiah 22 and I will place on his shoulder the key of the house of David. He shall open and none shall shut, and he shall shut and none shall open. Wow, that sounds very familiar, doesn't it? Sounds just like Revelation chapter 3 here, verse 7. That it's referring specifically to Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, uh, but ultimately the reference is to our Lord Jesus. That Eliakim functioned as a type of Christ, and our Lord Jesus is the one who is the son of David, that he rules from David's throne. We're told in 2 Samuel chapter 7 that he reigns eternally. He will always reign from David's throne. That he is the one who opens and no one will shut. He is the one who shuts and no one opens. That it's interesting. You look at any home. Uh, that the dad, uh, the husband, thinks that he has the final say uh, until he talks to his family and then he realizes that he's not the final say. So, for example, the dad says, all right, family, we're going to do this. And then the wife says, well, what about, what about this? Oh, I didn't think of that. Okay, we're going to do this. And the children say, well, dad, what, 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 about, what about this? We have school. Oh, we can't do that. Well, he realizes it's important that he talk to his family, get, his, get their input. Right? So he doesn't make these 
horrible decisions that he has to recount, or recant, sorry, recant. And we realize that Jesus is the one who doesn't get things undone. He is the one who has this finality. There is no one who overrules the Lord Jesus. There is, uh, there is no limit to his judgments and his jurisdiction. In the book of Daniel, chapter 4, verse 35, all the inhabitants of the earth are reputed as nothing. He does according to his will in the army of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. No one can restrain his hand or say to him, what have you done? This is speaking about God. That no one can hold back his hand. No one can question and say, what have you done? This is true about Jesus. He opens and no one shuts. He shuts. Nobody opens. There is a finality to his judgment. We think of this in terms of we have these appeal courts. We have these lesser courts. We have uh, these circuit courts. We have the appellate courts. We have the Supreme Court. You think about how in any of these Supreme Court nominations, one of the metrics they actually look at is the overturn rate of their decisions. So as their decisions get challenged and they go up, it actually looks bad for a judge who's being appointed to the Supreme Court that they have a significant overturn rate because that's saying, hey, their, their rulings are often wrong because the higher courts are saying, no, this is, not, this is not the right way to judge it. You realize that there are no appeal courts to the Lord Jesus. The Supreme Court is only a model of who Jesus is, that there is no appeal past him. He is the final say. It's a reminder to you and to me. Who are you trying to please? Whose favor do you desire? You realize he is the one who opens and no one shuts. He is the one who shuts and no one opens. When he says to his father, this is one of mine. My name is on him. My name is on her. That's all that needs to be said. This one is covered by my blood. This one is justified in my sight. Who is he who dares say, no, that person is wicked? Well, that's Satan's role, correct? He is the accuser. But we realize that Satan's voice means nothing if you are covered by the righteousness of our Lord Jesus Christ. That is the finality that we ought to understand. It doesn't matter if the whole world is against you, speaking ill of you, accusing you, so long as Jesus is covering you by his blood and he, he, he testifies on your behalf and says, this one is my own. That is the only thing that matters. He is the one who opens and no one can shut he is the one who shuts and no one can open. We consider Christ's commendations to the church in Philadelphia. We talked earlier about these seven messages to the seven churches in Asia Minor. They follow a general pattern and that there are exceptions. So generally there's the introduction, Christ identifies himself, who he is, his characteristics, he, he gives commendations, then he, he gives rebukes, uh, he gives uh, the promises or challenges 
And then he says, uh, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And then there are the exceptions, right? So the exceptions are Smyrna and Philadelphia, and then Laodicea. So Smyrna and Philadelphia, they have, they have no rebukes, essentially. And then Laodicea, sadly, they, they, have, they have no commendation. But notice here that in this letter with the church of Philadelphia, there's no call to repentance. This is why we would say that it's almost uniformly positive. There's no call to repentance. Jesus says, I know your works. Yet he said to, to Sardis earlier, I know your works. But then he repeats this thing, this statement, I have set before you an open door which no one is able to shut. So Jesus says that he is the one who opens and no one shuts, and who shuts and no one opens. And then he says to him, I have set before you an open door. Good question. What does this mean? Oftentimes the open door, we see that in is it 1 Corinthians, that the open door refers to ministry. Uh, I have before me a wide open door of ministry, uh, and there are many adversaries. So this door of ministry, Christ opens to his people, to his church. It seems as if he's saying, there's a ministry opportunity I've given to you. No one can shut it. And it seems as if, in verse 9, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not, but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. It seems as if he's saying that there is a ministry opportunity to these Jews. That they would, they would come to their feet, and they will learn that, that Christ has loved them. Is as if it's saying that these Jews will come to realize that you are before them. That there's a door of ministry. He, has, he acknowledges to the church in Philadelphia, I know that you have but little power. For people who are in the world, for the carnal mind, there is the desire for power. Why is it that for rulers, uh, they, when they take over, they take over, and most places, it's not by a ballot box. They take over by spilling blood. And we see that, how ruthless it is, that they, they take over the previous leader, they take his life, and they kill everyone related to him. Even his barber, his accountant, his lawyer, everyone, his, his gardener. And then, then you find the really wicked part, is when they kill all of the, that person's family, then they kill their own family. Meaning, they kill their own brothers and sisters because they are threats, challenges to his own authority. This is what a lust for power looks like. Exercising and lording it over others. This is what Jesus warned about. That you see this in the world. Those who have authority, those who have power, they lord it over others. Jesus sets the completely different example, the model, when he says that he has all authority. But he serves. He uses that authority to serve. He doesn't lord it over people. He serves them. He cares for them. He loves them. He sacrifices for them. For the people of this world... The carnal mind, there is a lust for this power. Let me ask you, 
Are you one who is still lusting after and craving power? Do you fear it? Do you covet when you see that others cower when someone speaks? Do you desire this? Do you desire this power? Do you end up fearing and believing and obeying the words of those who wield this power in the world? Oh, think about those terms, fearing, believing, obeying. What do those words tell you? It almost describes the act of worship that we fear, we believe, we obey our God. As a Christian, you must come to grips with your lack of power, and you must be fine with it. Jesus is one who possesses all authority and power in this world. That as Christians, we come to realize we have no power. We don't have, we don't have power even over our, our own nature. That we couldn't get our, give ourselves birth. We couldn't give ourselves new life. And as a Christian, it should be perfectly fine with you that we would say, it's okay. I realize, I confess, I don't have that power. I don't have that power over others. I don't have that power over myself. But I worship the one who possesses all that power. And he wields it when we cry out to him in faith, when we cry out to him in prayer. Here we see, perhaps Jesus here is acknowledging that the church in Philadelphia, perhaps they also, like us, that they're few in number. They're seemingly lacking influence in the world. That the world doesn't put a spotlight on them and say, hey, what are these people doing? They're the movers and the shakers. They're the ones that are ignored. They're the ones that are looked past. But Jesus is the one who said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. You realize that there is great power that we possess. That he has commanded that we go to him in prayer. That there's no shortage of power. We must be very careful what we ask for. Is it for our influence or is it for Christ's? You realize authority over others is not when they cower and fear you. It's when they willingly choose the things that you are saying. And it's our delight, it should be our delight when we see them walking according to the ways of our Lord Jesus. Here Jesus commends them. He says, Though they lack power, and yet you have kept my word. The world focuses on power and influence. It focuses on power and influence over others. They, they respect that. They fear that. But may you and I, may we focus on not our power and authority over others, but that you and I might focus on your duty and responsibility to the Lord. Christ has given you the duty to obey him at his word. And that is enough responsibility for anyone. How often is it that you give to a child a certain responsibility? All right. It is your job to put the utensils on the table before dinner. 
I don't want to do this because I want to be able to take the food and put it on the table. Oh, so you're telling me this is not enough responsibility. No, it's not. I want the bigger responsibility. Well, you will get the bigger responsibility when you manage the little responsibility. Correct? Because if you can't, if you drop the forks on the ground, right, you're going to drop our lunch on the ground. Correct? And so also, this principle is found in the word of God. Luke 16.10, he who is faithful in a very little thing is faithful also in much. And he who is unrighteous in a very little thing is unrighteous also in much. We sound like little children when we go to God. You have not given me enough responsibility. You haven't given me enough, uh, enough to look over. Because when you give me that, then I will be faithful. No, the Lord is saying, show me that you're faithful with the little and I'll give you more. The big responsibility that you and I have is that we would be responsible to obey and to keep his word. This is your duty. This is my duty, is that we would keep his word. Keeping his word, especially when there are others around us tempting us the other way. You realize that you give up so much advantage in this life, in this company, in, in our society because you follow this Jesus Christ. If only you would look the other way. If you would do something differently. You realize that he who embezzles and misappropriates a few dollars will certainly do the same with millions of dollars. You can't be trusted with a few, a few dollars of cash. You can't be trusted with a few millions. The temptation will only be greater. So also... The Lord is the one who says, are you faithful to me? Let's see what you are doing when you think nobody is watching. There's only one person watching all the time. That is the Lord Jesus. And that is the test of true faithfulness. He says also, you have kept my word and you have not denied my name. This probably goes back to the challenges. The Roman emperor in many of these cities, he was respected. In Philadelphia, a city of brotherly love, uh, it was apparently built on or near a fault line. Uh, those of us from California uh, kind of know what that means. That uh, if, you, if you're an earthquake country, uh, that uh, you're very careful. Uh, there is a stadium there uh, in California. It seems like seems like whenever it's time to build a stadium, they actually look for these fault lines and say, we're going to put the stadium right on the fault line because so there's a few that, that are right on fault lines. And, and these seats, you know, it starts to move. And apparently Philadelphia, the city, was built on a fault line. And um, what would happen is that the city was destroyed. You know, they didn't, they didn't have a, a seismic understanding back then. Hey, how, how, do, you, how do you build this this uh, building such that it's earthquake safe. They didn't, they didn't know about that. So these buildings came tumbling down and there were certain uh, Caesars who had said, okay, okay, I won't charge you tax, right? I won't tax you for a few years or hey, I'll come in, I'll actually rebuild the thing for you. And you can't just say thanks, right? You, you have to have a temple to Caesar. And you can imagine who have not denied my name. There's the question, hey, you need to say, hey, all of us citizens of line of Caesar is here watching. You need to be in line. You need to say, oh, especially you Christians. You need to be the ones who come first and say, 
Certain words, denying Christ, you burn some incense, and you say, Caesar is Lord, so get in line, get, go do it. Because if you don't do it, it'll be seen, it'll be seen as disrespect, spitting in the face of Caesar. So you, your children, go ahead, you go first. You can imagine, you can imagine. And, and, and whatever claim you have, right, hey, this is not any disrespect, right? He wants taxes, we'll pay taxes. He wants honor, we'll give him honor. No, it's worship that they want. We acknowledge that it's not mere words said. God views these words completely differently. And you and I must also. The world, Satan, will tempt you to deny Christ and present you wealth and riches and blessing for you to do so. Your life would be so much better if you just denied Christ in this way. Your life would be so much better. So many riches, so much blessing would come to you if you would bend this rule and break that rule, and you know what? You just, you just need to know when to break the rules. That's, that's what it boils down to. Well, here, Jesus commends them that you have kept my word, that you have not denied my name. Do not trade the temporary trinkets of the world for the eternal riches of Christ. There is no comparison. There is no comparison. You can have the trinkets for a short period. They will rust. They will corrode. They will be stolen. They will be destroyed. Or you can have the riches of Christ for an eternity. That is, that is what you and I are trading. For the sin of this world, for the pleasures of this world, we're trading things that will corrode and rust and be destroyed. The first point, Christ praises. The second point, Christ promotes in verses 9 through 11. Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not, but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. Because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. I mean, coming soon, hold fast what you have so that no one may seize your crown. Here Christ promotes... And he shows that regarding the relation to enemies. You think about for Christians then, Christians now, opposition comes in, uh, in a few ways. That it came from the world, those who are uh, from the world, those who are in power, or it came from false religions or false brethren. So for the Jews, that there was a time early on, you see, think about the book of Acts, early on when Christianity was considered a sect of Judaism. They were, they were, classified, they were classified as, they're, they're part of that same group. But then the Jews were very specific that they often had the favor of the rulers of the time. They had the right to have their free religion. And they made it clear to these rulers that Christians are not of us. They are a different group, and they should not be given those privileges because they, they worship this man, not you, O emperor, and they ought to be exterminated. So you think about that. The opposition often came from those who claim religion but were of a different group. False Christians, false religion, whatever's the case. Here, 
Oftentimes we think about Judaism as an ethnicity. So it's like, hey, are they claiming to be Jews, but they're not? Well, so, so they don't have the blood of Abraham? No, it's, he's not saying that at all. He's saying that they are not the covenanted people anymore. Think about how this works. Think about the simple question. When did Christ's church start? Some people say it started at Pentecost. Well, didn't it start earlier than that? Who was the first member of the church? Was it Adam? Right? Was it, was it Abraham? You know, you think about how, how far back it would have gone. Well, there was a church back then. It was Israel. That was the church. And Christ came. Christ told them that he is the Messiah they're expecting. He taught them from the Old Testament. See all these passages, they point to Jesus. And they rejected him. Israel was the church. But when they rejected their Messiah, they apostatized. And they ceased to be the church then. There was the Christian church that continued. So this is why the mention, uh, this is mentioned again, of the synagogue of Satan, as mentioned in one of the previous letters in Revelation. And that Jesus is clear. He says that they are synagogue of Satan, and that he specifies that they lie. They claim to be the covenanted people, but they broke the covenant. They are no longer the people of God. God's design all along, his plan, was that the Jews were to be a light to the nations. But when they rejected Christ, their light went out. Rather than being light, they became darkness. Isaiah 45, 14 they will walk behind you, they will come over in chains, and will bow down to you, they will make supplication to you, surely God is with you, and there is none else, no other God. This is, this is apparently what this reference comes from. They will come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. So Isaiah 45, 14 was that passage. Yet here, the irony of it all, is that these scripture speak of Honor meant for the Jews, but the irony is that the honor would be given to these Christians, to these Gentiles, most likely. That they would be the ones who would then receive this honor from the Jews when they acknowledge to these Christians in Philadelphia, oh, we see that God has honored you. That you are the teachers. We are the ones following you in the worship of the true and the living God in Jesus Christ. And then the, there's the mention, and they will learn that I have loved you. Have you ever wondered, have you ever wondered what others see in you? That they, they look at you, and you can think about all the externals, but have you ever wondered that the enemies of Christ, they look through and they look past all of that, and they can actually see, wow. This person who is not, the, is not the sharpest tack in the box, who's, who's not the wealthiest one on the block, who doesn't drive the best car, who uh, I, can, I can hear through the walls that seems like they're having some kind of disagreement in their household, they still realize this person is blessed of God and God's love is upon them. Do you realize that those who live in darkness, 
can actually hear and see these things. Those as mentioned, and they will learn that I have loved you. The Apostle Paul refers to this. He quotes Hosea there, Romans 9, 23 to 26, and that he might make known the riches of his glory on the vessels of mercy, which he had prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom he called, not of the Jews only, but also of the Gentiles. As he says also in Hosea, I will call them my people who are not my people, and her beloved who was not beloved. And it shall come to pass in the place where it was said to them, you are not my people. There they shall be called sons of the living God. When it becomes evident that even those who live in darkness see God's favor upon people. It's not supposedly a, a light that shines in the darkness that uh, always is there, that the light never goes out of your house. Whatever's the case, there is something visible. Others can see that God loves his people and his love is something that they covet. God's love extends to those of you who keep Christ's word. And may it be evident that we do so, especially in the little things. It is no small thing to be loved by God. It is a great thing to have God's love upon you. John 14, 23, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. May others see, as you have them into your home, that Christ and the Father have come and have made their home with you. Here Jesus also promotes, and that he spares God's people from the suffering to come. Now, I want to make it clear, this is not the usual route. That God doesn't exempt us from the suffering in this world. The general suffering due to sin, the specific suffering for the name of Christ. So this is not this is not a you get you get a carte blanche, right? That you you get out of some no, there's there's plenty due to us as Christians, and we should not be in a situation where we grumble and complain about it. Right? We should we should trust that God uses this affliction so that you and I would come to realize that our true comfort, our true joy, our true satisfaction is none other than Jesus Christ. For if he, if he had given us all the other comforts in this life, then we wouldn't come to depend and comfort in Jesus Christ. He's saying to the church in Philadelphia that he will spare them from some specific suffering. There. Because you have kept my word about patient endurance. It's as if he's saying, because you have suffered plenty, right? This patient endurance is being patient, enduring, persevering, specifically in a time of suffering. It's bearing up under suffering. Jesus says, because you have kept my word about patient endurance, because you have endured, he's saying, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world. And what is this referring to? Is it, is it something specific? Is it something general? Could it be referring to the Revelation 16? Was it the bowls of wrath uh, where Jesus sends some kind of a fierce heat and 
And it's because here, this mention of those who dwell on the earth, these earth dwellers, that this, it's a term that usually refers to those who are non-Christians, those who are living in darkness. That they're the ones we're told that this fierce heat came and this bowl of wrath was sent. And instead of, instead of repenting and seeking the Lord, that they nod their own tongues and then they blaspheme God. Whereas the case, there's, there's something that God is exempting from them from, from this suffering. And then verse 11, it's, it's a reminder that God gives them to cling to what is already theirs. He says, I am coming soon. Hold fast what you have so that no one may seize your crown. <clears throat> the crown is what is already yours in Christ. <clears throat> Every girl desires to wear a tiara or a crown of some sort. I have some of them sitting uh, in my living room. They, they hurt when I step on them. But these crowns are only a pale comparison to the crown that you already have in Jesus Christ. Jesus wore uh, the crown of thorns so that you may wear a crown of glory. Any crown of a king, of a queen, it attempts, it attempts to, to resemble the crown that Jesus alone gives. And there's, there's certain jewels. Certain jewels that you, even if you stole them, you can't sell them because everyone knows them by name, right? It, it's a famous jewel. There's, they've studied them. If you tried, hey, I, I want to sell this. And they, hey, listen, you're the thief that stole this thing. No, 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 can't do that, right? So the size of these jewels, they put them on these crowns. They're so rare. Oh, I suppose you could, you could cut them, right? You could cut them into pieces and sell them for less. It wouldn't work. But all of them, they attempt to mimic the crown that Jesus gives, the crown of glory. And Jesus wore the crown of suffering and shame. So also will you, so also will I. The only way you wear the crown of glory is that we also wear that crown of suffering and shame. But this crown that Jesus gives, this enduring crown, is the crown of life. Are you trusting in Jesus as Lord? Do you believe that he alone is the one who forgives sin? You realize that Jesus is the only one who gives that crown of glory. We all want it. We all think we have our special way of getting it. He alone is the one who gives it. And that we ought to understand that it is not by your works. It is only by Christ's perfect righteousness that you have this crown. He is the one who freely gives it. Are you trusting in Christ's offer that he willingly receives sinners? That you and I can be washed clean of our sin only by the blood of Christ. The only way that you and I will ever wear an eternal crown is if we receive the free offer of the gospel from Jesus Christ. So this is the second point Christ promotes. We have the third point. Christ promises in verses 12 and 13. The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it. And I will write on him the name of my God and the name of of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven in my own new name. He who has an ear, 
Let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers. It's a reminder to us. Zechariah 4, 6. Not by might, nor by power, but by my Spirit, says the Lord of hosts. That we are conquerors. Not because of any great power. No, we're the ones of little power. We're more than conquerors through Christ who loved us. Jesus is the one who conquers. He conquered us and took his enemies and made him his beloved children. It is by God's grace that he conquers and he makes his children pillars in his temple. You think back, was there an early writing of Revelation? Was it, was it before 70 AD or was it a later writing? In the 90s, whatever's the case, the earlier writing or the 90, later writing, there, was, there would have been significance. And was he, was he talking about this temple there in verse 12? I'll make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Was he, was he writing a saying, hey, this temple that was destroyed, that will never be rebuilt again. He's saying you will be a pillar in that temple. It's not pillars for stability. Pillars of recognition, pillars of honor. Right? Jesus is that stability. He gives us honor by his grace. We're, we're told here, never shall he go out of it. Well, is this a reference to those earthquakes? This much is true. For those of you who didn't grow up in earthquake country, if there's earthquakes, then there are aftershocks. The bigger the earthquake, the bigger and the more frequent and the number of aftershocks. I think back to, was it the Loma Prieta Crake in California? It was in 1989, it was 7.1. We had aftershocks for like the next, I think, next two or three weeks, right? The next two or three weeks, these earthquakes would wake us up and the house would, would shake. And the neighbor's pool, the neighbor's pool outside, it was, you know, a 20-foot pool. I looked during the earthquake, this is the major one, I looked, and the water in his pool was three feet above the fence level, right? This is water slapping, and shoot, shot up. You think about these earthquakes and the aftershocks. This is why Jesus mentions, never shall he go out of it. Because apparently what happened was, during these earthquakes and the his aftershocks, the city was, was in, in, uh, in a bunch of rubble, uh, or these aftershocks, they had to go outside the city to stay. Christ promises to you, his people, not only what is permanent, but what is eternal. We desire permanence, but what we have in Christ is what is eternal. And I will write on him the name of my God. Would you ever think that if you lived in a place, maybe if you're in the military, maybe you lived in a house with a whole bunch of people, right? You got to put your name on your underwear. You got you to gotta put your name on your garments, right? So here you would think, hey, hey, wait, wait a minute. Don't wear that one. That one's mine. That's, that's my underwear. I, I want to keep it clean. Right? And hey, hey, you think it's, hey, it looks like yours, but hey, whose name on it? It's my name, right? Here, here you think about having the name of God on you. That God says that he has his people written in the palm of his hand. And to have God's name on us. It's no small thing. 
This is in contrast to having the mark of the beast, right? As you have God's name on you. I will write on him the name of my God that you marked off. You are marked off as belonging to God. And the name of the city of my God. You think about, you go to another country, you can't just say, hey, I'm coming in. Well, who are you? Well, of course, you got to take out the passport, right? And then, you know, they, they look at you, they look at the passport, they look at you, look at the passport, they, they zip it through the security, and hey, okay, so that's you. How do you get in here? Uh, I, wait a minute, you, you mean I paid for this ticket and I need to have a visa? Yes, you need to have a visa. Well, hey, this, this whole concept of having the name of the new Jerusalem, of the city of my God on you. Hey, you're residents here. You're citizens of heaven. And then he has, you have on you, Christ's own new name. And we finish in verse 13. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This is found in every one of the letters, all seven letters. It's a reminder to you and to me. Are you and I listening to the voice of our master? Are you recognizing the voice of your master who is Jesus Christ? When he is here speaking, and he is here saying to the churches, and he says, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. When he calls to repentance, you realize he cannot err. He's infallible. There's nothing wrong with what he is saying. He is always correct. He doesn't have the wrong guy. But may you and I be one, be those who are listening to our Lord, that we would be warned, that we would be encouraged, that we would be guided by his words to us. As we consider these words, consider your opposition. Apparently, to these churches in Asia, there was great opposition where they were. Whether it be in those who possessed power, whether it be those who possessed influence, what is your opposition? Is the government against you? Or is it your own self-satisfaction, your own laziness, your own respectable excuses? Are these what are actually holding us back? It's a reminder to us it's no small matter. It is a great responsibility. It is a high duty to keep God's word and to be faithful to Christ's name. That you and I be reminded that this is no small thing. That we should seek to be faithful in the little things. Obeying Christ and his word and honoring his name. Despite the instability and the changing times that we are in. Christ is one who promises you a permanent, rather an eternal home in his kingdom as pillars in his temple. You realize in this life, we realize how little there is that is permanent. How soon things can be lost and taken away. How soon we lose favor of the ruling party. And you realize when Christ is the one who rules, Christ is the one who names, Christ is the one who gives, that these are the things that are truly eternal. May we trust in our Lord Jesus. May we worship him. May we delight in him. 
we go to our God together.